You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Amen. Well, good morning. You can have a seat. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are going to be in uh, verse 14, the verse that Melissa just read for us. And uh, that verse says, uh, I admonish you, brothers, to encourage or to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And we're going this morning to just hone in on that middle portion where it says to encourage the faint-hearted or to encourage uh, the discouraged. Uh, We are in our third Sunday of Advent. And so if you allow me, I want to do just a little bit of recap so that the rest of this makes sense this morning. Last uh, week, we, we considered not only are we in Advent, but what that means is the word Advent comes from a Latin word, which means arrival. And it's a time of the year when we join Christians all around the world and enter into a season of Advent. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to orient our hearts and direct our minds towards uh, the story that we belong to and, and where we are in that story, that you, Christian, brother, sister, you uh, live your life right now in between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. And so our life is a looking back at the fact that Jesus came. And that's the Christmas story. He was born to Mary. He was you know, laid in a manger and all of that that kind of surrounds uh, this time. And then also we're looking forward to the fact that one day Jesus will return, that the clouds will part and our King will come and everything that's wrong uh, will be made right. Everything that's sad will be made untrue in that. And so you are living your life in between. I, we are living in between the advents of Jesus. And we remember that. What that means though, is that means that you and I are waiting people. What it means to be a Christian. If someone asked you, what does it mean to be a Christian? There'd be a lot of right answers. One of those right answers would be, it means to wait. As much as we may or may not like it, it means that there's something that we're waiting for. Last week, we said that it's not an empty-handed waiting. It's like the waiting of being engaged, or it's like the waiting of an expectant couple that you're waiting, but you already have a portion of what you're waiting for, right? So when I was engaged to Carrie, and I was waiting for our wedding, I wasn't waiting empty-handed. She had already said yes, that she'd marry me, and so I was living in between the yes and the I do. I already had a little bit of what I was waiting for, and as we as Christians, we are in that kind of season of waiting that we already possess salvation. We have a a God who has placed his irrevocable love on you and on me. Our sins have been forgiven and and we are uh, waiting as those who already have what the the song says is a foretaste of, of glory divine. And yet when Jesus comes back, what we will experience is the longings that we still have will be satisfied. What we're asking this Advent, starting last Sunday, this morning and next Sunday, is just asking a simple question of where are you in the waiting? What's the condition of your heart in the waiting? What's maybe the temperature or tenor of your soul as a waiting person? And we're asking that right in the middle of a season of life that for many has been difficult. There's been so much of the waiting and longing that's been magnified, whether it's the controversy that surrounds us in the world or the difficulty that surrounds us because uh, we're living in the middle of a pandemic. And so this season, I wanna know, where are we? How is the waiting going for us? And 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is our guide because it uh, is written to a group of people who uh, 
have experienced persecution and suffering in Thessalonica. This is all what we covered last week. And some in that church have found themselves uh, overwhelmed by the fact that they're waiting. And Paul names three kinds of people that some have grown idle. Some are faint-hearted, discouraged. Others are weak. Last week we asked, are you idle in the waiting? This morning I want to ask you this, friends. Are you discouraged? Has your heart grown faint? in the waiting. Came across an article uh, last Monday from a Christian writer named Justin Taylor. He writes on a couple of different uh, sites that I follow, and in it he wrote uh, the story behind the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. You familiar with that song? It's a popular Christmas song. I heard the story. He wrote about the story behind that song. Later that day, I was listening to a sermon, one of my favorite preachers, and in the very beginning of the sermon, he tells the same story, the story behind the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And so I was struck by the fact that not only did I hear it once, but I heard it twice from different places within hours of one another. So I kind of dug in and um, considered this story. And what I was struck by is its relevance for not only the time that we're in, but also its relevance for our passage this morning. The song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day, is based on a poem that was written by a man named Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He was a really famous poet, one of the most well-known poets from the 19th century, and he wrote this poem called Christmas Bells on Christmas Day in 1863, and it's his poem that the song is based on. Here's the first half of that poem. It says this, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Isn't that nice? It's festive, right? Sounds very seasonal. Sounds a lot like the kinds of things that you see and hear. Like you read all that, the, you know, the carols and the songs. And it's like, okay, put up the lights and get out the stockings and play Mariah Carey, right? The Christmas or, or anything from her. It's all great. And uh, that's kind of the feeling of the poem. It's like getting hugged by a Hallmark movie. It takes a turn. The first half is maybe everything that you'd expect about this time of year. And then the Right in the middle, it says this. Then, from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's a change of tune, is it not? The carols drown, the earthquakes rent, hate is strong and mocks the song. There is no peace, the poet writes. You see, two years before writing this poem, less than two years before writing this poem, Henry, the poet, uh, his wife died in front of him. Her dress caught fire and he was in the room with her and he couldn't act quick enough to put the fire out. Couldn't save her life in the process. He was so badly burned that he had scars that remained on his face for the rest of his life. So he's a man who's grieving the loss of a spouse. It's Christmas Day, 1863, when he writes this poem, and uh, the country is in the middle of a civil war. Henry has six kids. His oldest son ran away from home to join the war against Henry's will, and he fought in the war. And in early December, just a few weeks before Christmas, His son was shot in the back and the bullet nicked his spine and he's in a hospital bed waiting to see if he'll walk again. 
And so the poet walks outside on Christmas Day, and he hears the bells that would play in his town on Christmas, and then he hears someone singing a song from Luke chapter 1 about peace on earth and goodwill to men, and in the midst of all that, he also hears the cannons of war, a country torn apart by war and chaos what he calls their black accursed mouth. And this grieving man who lost his wife to a fire that he's reminded of anytime he sees the scars in his own reflection, this father of six whose oldest son is fighting for his life says, I know that I'm supposed to sing the song and I know I'm supposed to hear the bells, but I can't ignore the cannons this Christmas. I can't ignore the fact that the cannons feel louder both around me and inside me. There is noise and there is pain. And so he sits down and writes this poem on Christmas Day to try to capture the dissonance that he feels in his heart where he knows he's supposed to be celebrating maybe, but he is overwhelmed by his own loss and he is not blind to the war that's playing out around him. And so in despair, I bowed my head, he writes. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Are you discouraged? Are you despairing? Do you feel that kind of dissonance maybe in your own life right now that there's so much festivity around, the lights are up, the Christmas spirit's maybe trying to make its presence known, and it feels like maybe those around you are very much the first half of the poem? Carols and songs... And yet, for you, the last half is the one that feels more honest. Hate is strong and mocks the song. The canons, the sounds of chaos are louder than the sounds of Christmas. You're a Christian. You're living in between the advents of Jesus. You are looking back at the fact that he came and God is with us. And you're looking forward to his return. And in the waiting, in the in-between, you've grown faint-hearted maybe. The sounds of loss or sickness or failure or grief, the canons, all of the vestiges of the fact that this world is still waiting for its final peace to come and maybe they've drowned out everything else. There surely has been much opportunity, friends, for discouragement these past 10 or 11 months. There surely is always in our lives enough of the residue of brokenness to weigh down the heart and weigh down the life. And so I'm asking, where are you in the waiting? Is your heart faint. What the poet felt and wrote about, and maybe if you're discouraged, what you feel right now is something that the Bible actually has a lot to say about. There's maybe a caricature of the Christian life where if you're really a Christian, then you're just kind of happy and bliss and festive all the time. And that might be a popular cultural conception of Christianity, but it's not a biblical one because the Bible over and over again will lean into the fact that part of our experience, the Christian experience, is discouragement. The Bible anticipates that and addresses that. Paul brings it up here in this passage. Like we said last week, this church in Thessalonica had been through it, oppression and loss and persecution. Uh, Paul is a, a spiritual father for them. He's run out of town, and so they are left abandoned, left alone, left leaderless in a lot of ways. Now, the miracle of the letter, if you have studied it, if you studied it with us, is that uh, their faith actually grew and their faith was strengthened even in the midst of all of that suffering. But some, according to verse 14 of chapter 5, some are discouraged, and of course they are. 
Had you watched loved ones martyred? Had you lost your job for your faith? Had you known that your identifying with Jesus costs you maybe all of the things that they used to treasure and place value in? Discouragement would probably be something that was close to your heart, if not at the very center of your heart. And God talks often in his word. In fact, God's word talks about this experience of faint-heartedness and this experience of feeling sad or this experience of losing hope. And it does so with this uh, cascade of metaphors. It uses poetry to try to capture in honest term what this feels like. Let me introduce a few of them to you or remind you of a few of them. The Bible will talk about this in Psalm 34 as being brokenhearted. Or in Psalm 34, it'll talk about it as being crushed in spirit. Life can be so heavy, can be so sad that the heart breaks. Uh, there is a kind of crush that I can be that's not external, it's internal. It's like life falls like a weight past my body onto my very spirit and crushes it. Isaiah 42 talks about it like a, says it's a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. Both have to do with being unable to do what I was made to do. There's very little left of me. A reed was wood that was made into an instrument. If it was bruised, it couldn't play. A wick is a candle. It's smoldering and it cannot give off light. These are things that don't have enough of what they need to be useful. Have you felt that? Have you, have you felt that things that you're supposed to be able to do, whatever you need to do them, you don't have enough of? Like a candle that's supposed to give light, but the wick is smoldering, an instrument that's supposed to play music, but it's a bruised reed, and you've felt that maybe as a friend, or you've felt that maybe as a spouse. Have you felt it as a parent? You reach into your life as a mom or a dad to offer whatever it is that your kids need, and there's just not enough there to go around. The bruised reed, the smoldering wick, Joshua 2 will add to that and call it a melted heart. The heat of my fears, the heat of my failures have left my heart melting. John 12 calls it a troubled soul. Do you know who says that? Jesus, talking about his own life. Our Savior, our King himself experienced this. In John 12, he says, my soul is troubled this happens to us in our waiting. According to God's word, the Christian can be brokenhearted, the Christian can be crushed in spirit, can be a bruised reed, a smoldering wick, have a melted heart, have a troubled soul. Is that you? Friend, if you are there, there is a road that God's word would have us walk this morning. There are three things that God would have the discouraged, the faint-hearted, the troubled soul. Three things he would have us do. Be specific. Be honest and be encouraged. Be specific, be honest, and be encouraged. Be specific, we'll take them in turn, about why you're discouraged. Generally, we all know the answer. Oh, many of us know the answer. Generally, it's the presence of sin. Generally, it's the fact that we live in a broken world. It's the story. And that's not a throwaway answer. It's really important that we remember the story that we belong to and that all the brokenness in our life, all the disappointment in our life is ultimately traces back to the fact that the world is not the way it was supposed to be. All of our suffering finds its way back to the same general answer that the world is waiting for the appearing of Jesus. And we should not be surprised that a world that is still waiting for the full presence of God in Jesus' return is painful in certain ways. But you see something in Scripture. You see saints who've gone before us, authors of God's Word. You see them experience their discouragement, and they don't give general answers. They get very specific as to why they're feeling the way that they're feeling. Let me offer a few examples. Isaiah, in Isaiah 38, says, my eyes are weary. He's discouraged. And then he names why, because of oppression. 
My eyes are, are weary because of injustice that had been committed against him and against the people of God and by the people of God. Jeremiah, in chapter 8 of his book, he says, my joy is gone. His heart is faint. He's crushed. And then he says, why? Because of the disobedience and unfaithfulness of the people of God. His joy has disappeared because of the godlessness around him. David in Psalm 31 says, my life is spent. My strength fails. Why? Because of his own sin. He names it. He says he's discouraged because of how costly his sin has been to him and how costly it's been to God and how costly it's been to others. He tried to hide it and it was ruining him. In John 12, when Jesus says, my soul is troubled, he names why? Because the cross is looming. This cup that he uh, had been sent to drink, the cup of wrath, is almost on his lips and it's left his soul troubled, anxious, weary. Are you discouraged, friend? Are your heart, is your heart faint? Are you feeling weak? Can you be specific? Can you name why? Is it a circumstance? Is it loss? Is it a relationship? Let's maybe do it like this. I wonder how often in your own mind you have completed this sentence. I just thought I would be by now. Complete that sentence and you might find a name for your discouragement. I just thought I would be married by now. And I'm discouraged because I feel alone or maybe I feel unmarriable. Maybe I even feel unlovable. I just thought I would be over this struggle by now. I'm discouraged because I keep running back to sins that other people have just seemed to have already conquered. And, and what is wrong with me? I just thought this relationship would be restored by now. It's been years and years of fighting and we've done counseling and we've sought advice and it just doesn't seem like we're any closer to peace. I just thought I'd have kids by now. I'm troubled because I want the good gifts that other people have and maybe I feel like I'm less than for not having them. Maybe I even feel cursed that I can't have them. I just thought I would be successful by now. Promotions and money that others have gotten, they just never come my way and I'm discouraged because I feel like a failure or I'm crushed because I found success and I still feel empty. So I'm discouraged because I feel deceived by others or by myself. I just thought I would be further along in my relationship with God by now. Honestly, I just thought I'd be a better Christian than I am. Have you had to quarantine yet? Not the one that we all did, but um, maybe after all that. I've had to quarantine twice. I was with someone that I didn't know had COVID. Turns out they had COVID, and I thought I was going to get it, so I quarantined. And um, both times, I had these really lofty plans for how much time I'd spent with God in quarantine. It's like quarantine's a lot of downtime. You can't really go anywhere. Anyway, and so I had this stack of books that I'm going to read and prayers I'm going to pray and podcasts I'm going to listen to. Here's my plan. I'm going to go into quarantine a decent Christian, and I'm going to come out a super Christian. <laughs> and it didn't happen. I had two shots, two like 12, 11-day shots, and it didn't happen. I mostly squandered the time. Like instead of books and journals, it's just streaming and shows. I went in a decent Christian and came out a movie critic or something like that, right? The only thing I got really good at was hitting the play next episode button before the five seconds ran out, you know, which is, it's, that's not easy. That's not, I'm proud of, anyway, I just thought I'd be further, I just thought I'd be further along than that by now. I'm discouraged by how weak my desires are for God. Discouraged by how there's this disciplined life that's out here that I just, aspire to live. And, and even though I know a lot about it, I feel, I feel really bad at living it. How would you complete that sentence? Would you say it differently? And maybe it'd be helpful to say it differently. 
would you say it instead of I just thought I would be, maybe you'd say I never thought I would, and you could name your discouragement that way. You'd say, I never thought I would be this sick. My spirit feels crushed because sickness has robbed me of so much life. It feels like it's not just my present, but it's my future. And, and, as a, and, and in the sickness, I don't want to keep missing out on what healthy people enjoy. Gosh, I never thought I would be this depressed. Man, I'm a smoldering wick. I feel trapped in my own mind. And I thought Christians were supposed to have peace. And yet it's the cannons of war that are in my head. And I can't drown them out. It's all I hear. I feel like a bruise. I cannot even try to give off the light that I was made to offer. I never thought I would sin the way that I have. Maybe even sins that have been forgiven. Maybe even sins that that have already been confessed. I just never thought I was capable of that. And I'm looking around at the consequences. or, Or I did the thing that if I'm honest, I used to judge other people for doing. And I just didn't think I had that in me. I never thought I would face loss like this. I never thought I'd lose a child. I never thought I'd lose my spouse. I didn't think I would lose mom or dad or friend, at least not this early. And I am overcome with grief still and tied up in that is I never thought I could be this sad for this long. Can you name your discouragement? Can you be specific? Can you follow that feeling of being crushed and and, and name some reality in your life, something that's present that you wish was absent or something that's absent that you wish were present? Can you be specific? And then if you can, Hold on to it, and you have to do something very, very specific with it. Be honest. Be honest with God about why you're discouraged. Here's the temptation. The temptation is to be able to name your discouragement and then to do one of two things, right? Not to be honest about it, but to name it and then to either dismiss it or distract yourself from it. And dismiss it is, we've talked about this before, but maybe I've been talking for 21 minutes now. And as I've asked, are you discouraged? Maybe your answer is no. And maybe your answer is no because that's true. You're not discouraged. Praise God. Your heart is filled with courage and hope and and, and you're doing well. And praise God. I know not all of us are, are feeling this. But maybe for some of you, your answer is no. And you are, but you answer no because you don't feel like you have a right to be. Meaning you look around and and you're quick to dismiss because you haven't been through what others have been through and your loss and your challenges don't quite compare to others. And so you, everyone else can kind of be discouraged and find comfort, but for you, you just have to get over it. And look, that discouragement, that sadness, that disappointment, if you dismiss it, it doesn't make it go away. It just means it comes out of your life in different ways. Maybe you shouldn't be, friend. Let's grant each other that. Maybe you shouldn't be discouraged. Maybe there are things in life that if you were thinking of more, if you were considering more, it would make that discouragement go away. You would find courage. And so maybe you shouldn't be, but you are. And that's what matters to God. Because God wants to deal. He doesn't want to deal with who you should be. He wants to deal with who you are right now. And maybe that means starting with you in discouragement that doesn't feel valid to you. But there's something there that God wants to know. There's something there that God wants you to know. There's something there that God wants to talk to you about. Don't dismiss. Don't distract yourself. If we go back to last week, I I think so much of the idleness that some of us walk in, so much of the idleness that we might battle uh, could come from discouragement that we refused to be honest about. And instead of facing it, we tried to escape through distraction. And it's left us highly committed to things of low importance. Because we know if God has this conversation with us or if we turn our attention to him and come to him in honesty, we know what he wants to talk about and we'd rather not deal with that. I told you last week that I've had to get um, five COVID tests. I hate it. it it's the, it's the, the nose one, the stab your brain one. And it hurts. And it's not, um, 
Well, I was going to say it's not that I'm not tough. That's exactly what it is. I'm not tough, and that's discouraging to me. Um, this is kind of weird to share. The last time, I was so dreading it the last time that right before the nurse did the test, I reached down. It's in the car. It's the drive-up thing. Right before the nurse did the test, I reached down, and I grabbed some skin on my leg, and I squeezed it as hard as I could. And then I held on to it until she was done with the test, and it hurt. And then I felt really dumb because not only did my face hurt, but then my leg hurt, right? It did nothing. It's pointless. And I was trying, I guess, I was trying to distract myself from the pain of the test by inflicting pain somewhere else. So I was trying to create a diversion from the pain that I couldn't control by inflicting pain that I could. Isn't that silly? I think we often do that in our lives with things that are more important and things that hurt in a deeper place. There's pain that we can't control, maybe disappointment or loss. And so we try to divert our attention and distract by inflicting pain other places because at least it's pain that we can control. At least it's pain that gives us some sort of semblance of still being in this place in our life where we exercise control over our circumstances. Look, that's what so much of addiction is. Addiction is uh, instead of facing what hurts, trying to dis- escape, and it's just creating pain other places, right? Uh, so much of us, we inflict pain in our relationships, maybe by being judgmental, or we inflict pain in our relationships by being cold or hypercritical, because that's easier maybe than facing things about ourselves that we feel shame over, or facing things in our past that have wounded us, or facing things in our present that are disappointing. And so it's this diversion that we try to create where I will, uh, I will distract myself by inflicting the kind of pain I can control so that I don't have to face with honesty the one I can't. Don't escape, don't dismiss, don't distract. Name your discouragement and then be honest with God. Take it to God in prayer. This is almost what the entire Psalms are. David does this over and over again. It's why the book of Psalms has throughout Christian history been such a balm to the discouraged. David says in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? He names, he's specific about what he's discouraged about. And then who's he talking to about it? Not himself. He's talking to God. He says in Psalm 42, my soul is cast down, O God. He takes this discouragement that he's named and then he turns it into prayer. And so you take that feeling of being crushed and you don't talk, if you just talk to yourself about it, you will either go into blame shifting or into escaping or you will go down a path of shame that you lead yourself down. If you turn it into prayer, God will take you down a path of love. And you say, God, I just thought I would be in a different place. I never thought I would feel this hopeless. God, I prayed for healing and I feel like you aren't listening. God wants that kind of honesty from you, discouraged one. Because that kind of honesty is an act of trust. Turning to God is me saying, I will be honest about my troubled heart, but I don't want to be ruled by it. And so that prayer is an act of giving over control. That prayer is an act of submitting to God's sovereignty that I will be honest about what's troubling me, but I am not going to be ruled by it. I submit my life to God, and that includes the things that weigh me down. This is what Jesus does in John 12. He says, he spends a short amount of time saying my soul is troubled and he immediately goes to why God has put him on the earth. He says, my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, no, no. It's for this hour that I've come. 
And so he names his discouragement and then immediately he submits himself back to the will and sovereignty of the Father because even his discouragement falls under God's sovereign plan. And he says this, he's honest about where he's at, he's not ruled by it, he turns it into prayer and his conclusion is, Father, glorify your name. I am troubled, I trust you, and glorify your name. Now Jesus did that alone. Most of us, well, all of us not named Jesus, the Christ, we need others to help. We need to be honest with God, but don't be honest with God alone. Be honest with God in community. Underneath our discouragement, underneath our disappointment, underneath our troubled souls, we will find something. Almost always we will find something. We will find beliefs about life. We will find beliefs about God. We will find beliefs about ourselves that maybe we didn't even know we had, that it took loss or it took difficulty to unearth. Which means if I am specific and then I'm honest, that honesty goes two directions. That is honesty that I offer to God and then that's honesty that I invite from God. That's what Job got. You remember Job? He's honest with God about where he's at and then God is honest with him back. And so I should be open to, in my discouragement, asking and inviting that maybe my discouragement is from believing God broke a promise that he actually never made. And in that honesty, I'll discover that, be able to confess that, be open with that. Maybe it's the consequence of trying to control what only God can control. Maybe it's the consequence of trying to be who only God can be. But in that honesty, if it's just talking to myself, I have no chance at unearthing the things that God would want to bring out of my life that he might deal with gently. He will always, in discouragement, offer comfort and confrontation because he loves us. So much more could be said. If there's one thing, if there's one thing to remember, it's that once we've named, if there's just a half step that we take together, if we're discouraged, it would be naming and then refusing to go to unhelpful places and committing to be honest with God about discouragement. And when we're honest, we open ourselves up to be something else. We open ourselves up to be encouraged, be specific, be honest, and out of that honesty, be encouraged. That's what our verse commands this morning. Paul says, encourage the faint-hearted, the fearful, the persecuted, the ones grieving loss. Paul believes that they can be encouraged. They can be lifted into hope from discouragement. It doesn't mean stop feeling what you're feeling. It doesn't mean take some sort of Christian platitude like a pill and it'll make everything go away. It is to say that as a Christian, you have access to truths. As a Christian, you stand in relationship with God in such a place that you can be encouraged and you can let the things that are in tension in your life weigh equally as heavy. You can let the encouraging things even weigh heavier in your life than what you might despair over. Can I offer three encouragements to you if you're discouraged and we'll be done. The first, be encouraged. Jesus knows what it's like. He can sympathize. Jesus enters in. Jesus volunteers, comes from heaven. That's what we celebrate. God with us, Emmanuel. He volunteers to come from heaven to earth. And he knows, he knows that that will be a life that is filled with trouble. He knows it will be a life that is filled with these moments of being crushed in spirit. And he enters into that for you and for me. Sadness, his heart breaks, his spirit is crushed. He is the bruised reed. He is the smoldering wick. His heart is broken. He prays in the garden, filled with trouble, and then he dies on a cross. 
And he goes into a tomb and he comes out as a risen king who can sympathize with your weaknesses, Hebrews said. He is a risen king who can lift your face and stand by your side. One who doesn't say to you in your discouragement, get over it. One who says to you, I've been there. I know what it's like. Be encouraged, Jesus knows. Be encouraged. God is near you right now simply because you're hurting. Over and again in his word, that's what he promises to the hurting. God is near you right now if you're discouraged simply because you are where you are. He does not distance himself from the discouraged. Look, if you remember the metaphors, the brokenhearted and the crushed spirit from Psalm 34, do you know the rest of that verse? What it promises, it says about God is that he is near to the brokenhearted. How does he relate to those whose hearts broke? He's near to them. He saves the crushed in spirit. Those whose spirits have crushed under the weight of life, how does God respond? He's quick to come and rescue. The bruised reed and the smoldering wick from Isaiah, the useless, the unable to perform, the unable to fill their purpose, what does God do? According to God's own testimony about himself, a bruised reed he does not break. A smoldering wick he will not put out. He will not break you in your weakness. He will not abandon you in your frailty. Look right at me, friend. He doesn't love you because you're useful. He loves you because you're his. He loves you because you belong to him, able or unable, strong or weak, at peace or anxious, healthy or falling apart. It is those who are most in need. It is those who feel most low that God is so near to. They are the very ones that he is quick to come to their side, to be present. And when God does come, friend, God comes with his own sentences about you that he has already completed. And so we can be discouraged and so we can name and be specific about our discouragement and write, but God who is present with you right beside the sentences that you would complete. God has his own. I never thought I would sin like this. And right beside it, I never thought I could be loved like this because God comes and says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled, how much more shall we be saved by his love, his irrevocable love? I just thought I'd be further along than I am. And right beside, God has his own sentence. He who began a good work in you will finish what he started. Gosh, I, I just never thought I would be this sick and I pray that God heals you and I pray that that comes soon. But even in sickness, God comes and says, take heart, though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. I never thought I would feel this alone and right next to it, God says, I'm near to the brokenhearted, I saved the crushed in spirit, I never thought I'd be this discouraged. And God stands and says, be strong and courageous, do not fear, it is the Lord your God who goes with you, he will never leave you or forsake you. God is near. Be encouraged. Jesus knows. Be encouraged. God is near. And be encouraged that this is not forever. You will not be discouraged forever. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow writes one final verse in his poem. His poem doesn't end with hate is strong and mocks the song. It ends with a short final verse that says this. Then ring the bells, more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. He ended with hope, not despair. 
He could sit in the dissonance of the celebration around him and the sadness within him. He could see, even when the cannons felt louder than the bells, the grieving widow, the worried father, even he could know and believe and hold on to the sound that would win out, the noise that would prevail. God will win. God will win. God gets the final sound. And he could sit in the honesty that the song felt mocked right now and still with his pen and in his heart write the final verse. Then ring the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill toward men. This current moment is not the last verse of your life. There is a short final verse of victory and freedom and peace coming because Jesus will return and you belong with him and nothing will separate you from sharing in victory and peace with him. My question, friend, can you sit in this verse and sing the next one? Can you sit in the place where the cannons are louder than the bells and hope in a future that's coming when the glory of God drowns out the chaos and all that's left is perfection and all that's left is quiet and all that's left is worship and all that's left is peace. The short final verse where Jesus returns and everything is made right then rang the bells more loud and deep. Can you believe it? The louder than your doubt and deeper even than your pain and fear and discouragement. It's God and it's his promises and they are as sure as Jesus is good, the sound more loud and deep. God does not sleep. He is not dead. He is enthroned on high in complete control over all things. Take heart. He has overcome the world. Wrong will fail. Right will prevail. Peace on earth and goodwill toward you, my friend. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. Would you, in this moment, by your spirit, comfort? Could you guide us, God? Those in the room, those watching from home, those listening later online. Lord, would you take us by the hand, especially those who would, especially those who find themselves in the chaos, who find themselves identifying with everyone of the discouragement metaphors who would raise their hand and say, I, I, I just can't even see the final verse. Would you take us by the hand? Would you lead us into honesty with you? And would you surround our lives right now with the truths, God, that speak the better word and tell the better story? I don't know every story, God, but I know some. And I know that There are just so many, God, who have experienced loss in such tragic ways. There are so many who would say there's just kind of been a low-grade discouragement for so long. And then others who would say, like the prophet, my eyes are weary. My soul has melted. We find comfort in you, O God. We thank you that who you are and what you've done, we thank you that the story does not end in despair. The story ends in decisive victory our eternal king coming, making everything right. Jesus, we're waiting for you. We need you. Our hearts long for you. We thank you that our future is secure in you. Our inheritance is sure in you. And we 
needs you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.